Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 16th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. We'll begin with the five-day forecast for the Siouxland area, and just as a quick look at it, it looks like Wednesday is going to be the uh, warmest day. So today is going to be sunny but still cold with a high of 9 and a low tonight of minus 2. Wednesday will be um, some sun and then it will come to clouds with a high of 19 and a low of 0. Thursday is going to be cloudy and cold and with the possibility of some snow in the afternoon with a high of 9 and a low of minus 7. And Friday is going to be mostly sunny but still cold with a high of 6 and a low of minus 20. And then Saturday is going to be also cold with a high of 6 and a low of 2. And we'll begin our stories uh, today with the um, last night's caucus. Newcomers braved Northwest Iowa cold in droves to back Trump in caucuses. The cold did not bother Sioux City residents much Monday night. Just in the Rockland Conference Center on the Western Iowa Tech Community College campus, 357 people showed up to make their GOP presidential candidate preferences known for the 2024 Iowa caucuses. The location encompassed seven precincts, and about half of the voters from those precincts raised their hands when asked if this was their first time participating in the process. When it came time to tally votes, more than half of the room backed former President Donald Trump, who was making his third bid for the White House after defeating former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in 2016 and losing to President Joe Biden in 2020. I want my country back, said Trump voter Gene Brickenhoff. I want my country back from communists, from liberal progressive communists. She said the issue that most concerned her in 2024 was the U.S. border with Mexico and an overabundance of federal regulations. Lita Schulenberger, who supported Trump as well, liked the 45th president's policy about building a border wall and his economics. While brandishing a Trump pen where the WWE Hall of Famer had boxing arms akin to Rock'em Sock'em Robot, Schulenberger said she appreciated how Trump combated pointless spending. The Associated Press called the race for Trump at 7.31 p.m. At 11 p.m., the AP website had Trump with 51% of the vote, Florida Governor DeSantis with 21.2%, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley with 19.1%, Ohio businessman Vivek Wamaswamy with 7.7%, Texas pastor Ryan Binkley with 0.7%, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson with 0.2%. In the final Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll before the caucuses, 48% of likely GOP caucus scores said the former president was their first choice. That poll showed Haley at 20%, DeSantis at 16, Ramaswamy at 8, Hutchinson at 1, and Binkley at 1. As Siouxlanders were in the line to caucus, the temperature sat at minus 6 degrees Fahrenheit. Caucus night, which began at 7 p.m., came after a week-long winter storm dumped more than a foot of snow on northwest Iowa, brought winds blowing 30 miles per hour or more, and forced numerous candidates to rework or cancel planned events in the most conservative corner of the state. At 
Around 1 p.m. on Monday, DeSantis, in the last in-person candidate event for Siouxland, asked a a room of about 60 people at Pub 52 in Sergeant Bluff, are you ready to brave the frigid temperatures? He said, you have an opportunity to make your voice heard. And the appearance lasted about 45 minutes and featured Kentucky Representative Thomas Macy and Texas Representative Chip Roy. Macy joked about his mom approving of DeSantis and praised DeSantis' foresight. Most of my colleagues can't think past their next lunch meal. He thinks two years ahead, Macy said. DeSantis had the most attacks for Trump. DeSantis called him a lame duck, pointed out Trump's refusal to debate, and said he was more of a ruler than a leader. Even with the caucuses just hours away, there were locals who were not quite sure who they'd be supporting later in the day. Uh, Thomas Burroughs said, It's up in the air between Trump, Vivek, and DeSantis. Asked what would finally decide things for him, Burroughs said just being in the room on caucus night would probably provide clarity. Vicki Kolbaum, who said her top issues were the border, the economy, and foreign affairs, said she was treating the last second swing as a chance to learn more. Just want to know what's going on with each of the candidates to make a full decision. And another aspect of the caucuses, caucuses boost the economy. The slew of presidential candidates who stumped for votes in Northwest Iowa over the past year also pumped an infusion of cash into many area businesses. The Iowa caucuses attracted not only candidates and their paid campaign staff, but also volunteers and members of the national media to Sioux City, said Christy Franz, executive director of the Sioux City Regional Convention and Visitors Bureau. She said those individuals contributed to the local economy by staying in hotels, eating in our restaurants, shopping at our stores. Few businesses in Iowa get more nationwide exposure during the caucuses than the Pizza Ranch, the Orange City, Iowa-based chain of buffet restaurants, which has long been a staple for Republican candidates. Vivek Wamaswamy, the Ohio businessman and GOP candidate who has barnstormed Iowa for months, stopped at Pizza Ranches throughout the state roughly 40 times. The um, And then on December 27th alone, the campaign visited six pizza ranch locations. On several trips, the campaign purchased buffets for attendees, including an October 30th event at the Pizza Ranch in Sioux City. David Peterson, an ISU political science professor, said Pizza Ranch has maintained its status as a campaign tradition in part by virtue of being a tradition coupled with the chain's long-standing willingness to host candidates. I think there's essentially a little bit of momentum. Once it starts, it just keeps going, he said. They are in lots of places. They've scattered across the state, Peterson added. The basic design of a pizza ranch is pretty good for one of these events. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his wife Casey also made pizza ranch visits in this cycle and staffed at other area eateries, including the Johnny Mars Family Restaurant in Sioux City on January 3rd. Other local favorites have seen big groups of visitors thanks to candidates. Last Thursday afternoon, following a major winter storm with temperatures in the teens, DeSantis attracted roughly 50 people to the Wells Visitor Center and Ice Cream Parlor in Lamar's. The campaign treated attendees to free ice cream. DeSantis himself took a cone of praline pecan.
While some area venues allowed candidates to use space for free, others benefited from campaigns who booked rooms for large rallies. Roughly 500 people turned out to see out to country celebrations on January 3rd to see South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem stump for former President Donald Trump. The popular Sioux City events venue at 5606 Hamilton Boulevard also had to turn down other, another campaign event because they were already booked. Country Celebrations also hosted three precinct caucuses for Plymouth County on Monday night. Ellison said she set up 500 chairs for the caucuses, though the bitter cold weather was expected to deter some caucus goers. Ellison said the caucus-related events provided invaluable exposure for her business. We get people in that have not been there before, some advertising there, and then people can see that I can do just about anything for different kinds of events, she said. Iowa's 2024 caucuses are expected to generate an estimated $4.2 million in direct economic impact to Des Moines, but that's down 40% from the $11.3 million provided four years ago, the New York Times reported on Friday. Direct impact is defined as visitor activity such as sleeping, driving, eating, and drinking. The sharp decline was attributed uh, to diminished media engagement in a presidential race that is less competitive than in past years when Iowa's delegates were contested by multiple Democratic candidates. This year, Trump has dominated in the polls. Iowa State University economics professor Emeritus Peter Orizem said past caucuses goosed the state's gross state product by roughly 0.02 to 0.04%. It's minuscule, uh, Orizem told the journal. While advertising accounts for the bulk of campaign spending, other expenditures include staff payrolls and hospitality-related expenses such as restaurants and hotels. Peterson noted that the GOP campaigns have opened remarkably few campaign offices in Iowa this year, where in the past a local campaign office was considered a must-have. Thus, the flow of rental dollars in local communities has been lessened somewhat. This cycle, there's almost none of that, Peterson said of campaign offices. DeSantis was the only candidate this cycle to open a campaign headquarters in Sioux City. Perhaps no businesses in Sioux City benefit from the campaigns than the three local television stations. The flood of money makes this the most expensive GOP caucus in Iowa ever, setting new records for both super PAC and overall spending, according to Political, a national political news site. Since the start of 2023, super PACs have spent more than $85 million on TV ads across the nine media markets that covers portions of Iowa, according to a political analysis data, which tracks political advertising. For some entities, the caucuses are an opportunity to maintain goodwill and relationships with the community, even if no direct financial windfall is likely. I think that by those candidates coming into our community, not only is there an immediate impact of people coming into town, but it also gives us that media exposure, both nationally and internationally, that shows Sioux City in a good light, Franz said. Western Iowa Tech Community College hosted several Republican precinct caucuses Monday night, with the potentially hundreds of caucus goers expected. We are here to serve the community, and the election process is an important part of that, said Steve Warnstead, Government Affairs Coordinator for uh, Western Iowa Tech. So we are pleased to play a constructive role in the development of the community. And obviously, presidential caucuses are a high-profile event.
To the extent the caucuses benefit the broader economy over a longer period, beyond just the TV stations, the hospitality industry, and the pockets of campaign staffers, it's through exposure. Larger segments of Iowa's economy, like agriculture and ethanol, reap the rewards of having politicians' attentions. Probably the most important value is that politicians have to pay attention to topics that are important to Iowa, or as M said. There are a lot of states, and rural states in particular, whose importance is negligible in terms of national political debate, but they pay attention to Iowa because it because it shaped the start of the presidential campaign. And without that, there's not going to be much effort spent in all, at all in terms of how important is ethanol to South Carolina. We now move away from the caucus in um, stories and to this next one, which headlined, Police Data Shows 10% Increase in Violent Crime. Overall violent crime in Sioux City increased by roughly 10% last year, as did total crime, according to preliminary data released by the Sioux City Police Department. A total of 459 violent crimes were recorded in 2023, compared to 416 the previous year. The number of overall crimes increased from 2,000 982 in 2022 to 3,309 in 2023. Sioux City Police Chief Rex Mueller said in a memo that the most striking increase was in homicides and that any rise in violent crime is a cause for concern. Just one murder was tallied in 2022, while six were recorded in 2023. Although some violent crime increased marginally, there were decreases in other areas of violent crime. While many violent crimes are gun-related, current departmental initiatives are doing a very good job of identifying and prosecuting our most dangerous local offenders, Mueller said. The city saw increases in robbery, aggravated assault, burglary, larceny, and theft. The number of arsons remained unchanged. There were decreases in rape, kidnapping, and motor vehicle theft. Total property crime increased by 11% from 2,566 in 2022 to 2,850 in 2023, according to the preliminary data. Looking at our historical property crime statistics, there is nothing overly concerning. Local property crime trends tend to have ebbs and flows over the years. With no strong fluctuations in any type of criminal activity, we can simply view this as a reasonably steady crime rate, Mueller said. We'll now move to a section called Overheard in the News, which are uh, quotes from the last week from various newsmakers. The first one is from Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen in the annual condition of the Judiciary Address on the paucity of applicants for district court judge vacancies. This dramatic decrease in applicants is deeply distressing. Being appointed by the governor to the bench should be a pinnacle of an attorney's career, not a deep financial sacrifice. The next one is from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and her condition of the state speech on Perry High School Principal Dan Marburger, who suffered multiple gunshot wounds in the January 4th school shooting and subsequently died. And she said, his unflinching bravery saved lives that morning. The next uh, quote is from Sioux City Recreation Superintendent John Burns 
on the budget for the for Cone Park, which took a hit when unseasonable warmth in December prevented the tubing hill from operating, followed by closures last week caused by the severe winter weather. And he says, with the ticket price increase, we are still optimistic that we will have a positive financial picture this winter. Next is from Brian Junk, who's the manager of the Gordon Drive Bomb Guards on the hot demand for snowblowers last week during the blizzard. And he says, as fast as we can put them together, they go out the door. People tell us we're the only ones around that have them in stock. And then um, the next one is from Sioux City North High School senior Molly Sack on her career as a student wrestler. And she says, before finding wrestling, I was kind of struggling. I did not know if I was going to go to college, but being able to wrestle, I've been able to get a few scholarship offers. It's opened a whole new door of possibilities for me. Uh, our next one is from Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer on the Iowa Legislature's conservative agenda as the 2024 legislature session begins. And he says, in one sentence, here's the plan cut taxes, control spending, reform governor, government, and let Iowans be great. Let's get to work. And then the last one is for Michelle Book, who is the CEO of Food Bank of Iowa on the needs of Iowa's economically disadvantaged. More than 36% of working Iowa households don't make enough money to cover the cost of basic needs. In many parts of rural Iowa, a 20-hour job is the best job in town. However, this does not provide sufficient funding to raise a family, rent or buy a house in a dynamic housing environment, secure quality daycare, drive a car, let alone purchase adequate nutritious food to support the growth and development of our state's youth. We'll now move to the uh, regular feature, Five Questions With, and this time is Sioux City Parks and Rec uh, Director Matt Salvatore. Matt Salvatore, who became Sioux City Parks and Recreation Director in 2014, has seen a number of additions to Sioux City Parks over his tenure. For more than a decade, bicyclists and outdoor enthusiasts waited for the city to build a section of payment pavement along the Missouri River that would link the city's southernmost trail in Chautauqua Park to Chris Larson Park. In the fall of 2021, the city completed that long-awaited connection to the Riverfront Trail. Last summer, after roughly three years and $12 million in construction costs, the finishing touches were placed on Chris Larson Park along the Missouri River. Additions to the riverfront include an interactive fountain, playground, red bench-style swing, plaza, dog park, overlooks, and exercise equipment. Two years after snow tubing and ice skating debuted at Cone Park at 3800 Line Drive in 2017, the All Seasons Park was awarded the Outstanding Attraction Honor from the Iowa Tourism Bureau and the Travel Federation of Iowa. <clears throat> Summer tubing was added at Cone Park in June 2022. Two lanes of plastic-type track on the main hill, which act like snow, are installed on the hill at the beginning of the summer season and removed before snowmaking begins. The park is also in the process of becoming a destination for mountain biking when 10.5 miles of sustainably constructed single-track shared use and bike-only trails are completed next spring. The Parks and Recreation Department broke ground on the nearly $3 million project in August. Salvatore chatted with the journal for our latest installment of five questions. Comments have been edited for length and clarity. 
How many parks does Sioux City have? How do we compare to other cities our size in terms of number of parks or spaces dedicated to parks? And the answer, Sioux City has 59 parks. Sioux City has more parks per capita than most cities. The city of Des Moines had 76 parks when I worked there back in 2012, and they are more than twice our size. Next question, which parks do you think are most popular with residents and why? And he answered, in no particular order, I would rank our top five parks as Chris Larson Park, Cone Park, Grandview Park, Riverside Park, and Sertoma Park. These parks are destinations with large acres, trails, unique amenities, and are popular locations for activities and events. Uh, next question, do you have a favorite park? If so, which one and why? And he answers, <clears throat> Chris Larson Park is my favorite park. It is a large linear park, the focal point of the trail system, and is very scenic as it is located right next to the Missouri River. What does it take to maintain Sioux City's parks? We have 21 full-time positions and 23 part-time positions dedicated to maintaining our city parks. Our staff is diligent in mowing, weed eating, picking trash, cleaning bathrooms, maintaining playground equipment, and playground surfacing, maintaining trees, spraying, sweeping trails, and removing snow on trails in the winter months. And then the last question, how can citizens help maintain Sioux City's parks? And he answers, citizens can help the city maintain parks by picking up trash, treating equipment and amenities with respect, parking in designated areas, picking up after dogs, and reporting vandalism and issues when they are observed. Now we'll move to a technology story. AI smart gear lead cutting edge advances at the Las Vegas showcase. CES 2024 kicked off in Las Vegas with a showcase of the latest advances and gadgets across personal tech, transportation, healthcare, sustainability, and more, with many uses of artificial intelligence or AI almost everywhere you look. Here are some of the more interesting developments from the multi-day trade event put on by the Consumer Technology Association from vehicle tech to wearables designed to improve accessibility to the newest home smart home gadgets. First, transparent TVs. Consumer electronics giants LG and Samsung have unveiled transparent TVs at the show, with LG having just announced its OLED powered display will go on sale later this year. Almost invisible when turned off, LG 77 inch transparent OLED screen can switch between transparent mode and a more traditional black background for regular TV mode. Uh, David Park from LG's Home Entertainment Division says, the unique thing about OLED is it's an organic material that we can print on any type of surface. And so what we've done is printed it on a transparent piece of glass. And then to get the OLED picture quality, that's where we have that contrast film that goes up and down. Content is delivered wirelessly to the display using LG's Zero Connect box, which sends 4K images and sound. And then, but why would we need a transparent TV? When not being watched as a traditional TV, the OLED T can be used as a digital canvas for showcasing artworks, for instance. Samsung's transparent micro LED powered display showed off the technology as a concept. 
Then the next one is about your own personal bartender. Ryan Close loves a good cocktail, but he's the first to admit that he is a terrible bartender. That's why he said he created Bar Bartesian, a cocktail-making machine small enough to sit on your kitchen counter. Its newest iteration, the Premier, can hold up to four different types of spirits. It retails for $369 and will be available later this year. On a small screen, you pick from 60 recipes, such as a cosmopolitan or a white sangria. Drop the cocktail capsule into the machine, and in seconds, you have a cocktail over ice. Lemon Drop is Bartesian's most popular recipe, according to Close. And then um, the next one is about a paw port pet door. It can be tricky to keep track of your furry friends in and out of the house, but a new pet door might make that a little easier. Tech startup Pawport has unveiled a motorized pet door that will let your pet come and go as they please, while keeping other critters out. An accompanying collar tag will open the door when your pet is near, but there are also customizable guardrails. The product, which can slide directly onto existing pet door frames, can be temporarily locked for specific pets or set to curfews using the Pawport app or with remote control through compatible virtual assistants like Amazon's Alexa or Google Assistant. Pawport's pet door and app are currently available for pre-order and are set to make their way into homes during the second quarter of 2024. And then smart locks go biometric. It's 2024. Of course, your face can unlock your phone, and your front door is next. Lockly, a tech company that specializes in smart locks, is showcasing a new lock with facial recognition technology that allows consumers to open doors without any keys. The new smart lock, dubbed Visage, is set to hit the market this summer. In addition to facial recognition, this lock will feature a biometric fingerprint sensor and secure digital keypad for alternate ways of entry, similar to past Lockley products. Visage is also compatible with Apple Home Key and Apple Home. And then ads coming to grocery carts. Food companies advertise all over the grocery store with eye-catching packaging and displays. Now, Instacart hopes they will start advertising right on your cart. The San Francisco-based grocery delivery and technology company is unveiling a smart cart that shows video ads on a screen near the handle. General Mills, Del Monte Foods, and Dryer's Grand Ice Cream are among the companies that will advertise on the carts during an upcoming pilot at West Coast stores owned by Good Food Holdings. Instacart says a screen might advertise deals or show a limited edition treat like chocolate strawberry Cheerios. Might also share real-time recommendations based on what customers put in the cart, like advertising ice cream if a customer buys cones. Instacart says it expects to have thousands of caper carts deployed by the end of this year. Samsung and Hyundai team up to add AI to your car. Samsung has announced that it is collaborating with Hyundai to develop home-to-car and car-to-home services for all Kia and Hyundai vehicles. What that means is that people will be able to use Samsung's SmartThings service to set your car's cabin temperature or open its windows, and when you're in your car, you'll be able to control your home's lights and interact with any of your connected smart devices. 
Samsung also announced a team up with Microsoft to bring more co-pilot AI functions to its flagship Galaxy smartphones. Hyundai sees a future in hydrogen. Hyundai spotlighted its future plans for utilizing hydrogen energy. Beyond hydrogen-powered fuel cell vehicles, the South Korean automaker pointed to the possibilities of moving further into energy production, storage, and transportation, as Hyundai works toward contributing to the establishment of a hydrogen society. Company leaders say this sets Hyundai apart from other automakers. We are introducing a way to turn organic waste and even plastic into clean hydrogen. This is unique, said Jose Munanz, President and Global Chief Operating Office of Hyundai Motor Company. Hyundai also shared plans to further define vehicles based off of their software offerings and their new AI technology. With so-called software-defined vehicles that could include opportunities for consumers to pay for features on demand, such as advanced driving assistance or autonomous driving down the road, Hyundai also aims to integrate its own large language model into its navigation system. And now the next one is PlayStation Controller makes Cameo for Sony. Sony Honda Mobility returned to the CES this year with some updates to its Afila EV. While the car itself may not be any closer to moving out from being a concept, Sony had some fun with it. The company drove it onto the stage with a PlayStation controller. President of Sony Honda Mobility, Izumi Kawashini, was quick to point out that Afida owners likely won't be driving cars using controllers in the future. And then another one for the pets. Busy families with dogs may want to be on the lookout for a new AI-powered robot that promises to play with, feed, and even give medicine to your furry best friend. Consumer robotics firm Augman was at the uh, show to show its new Oro Pet Companion, an autonomous robot designed to assist with pet care by feeding, providing medicine, even playing with your dog using a ball launcher built into its chest. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 16th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to the obituaries, and there is only one today. Alan Edward Welding, 93 of Sioux City, passed away Thursday, January 11th at a local care center. A small memorial gathering will be held at 10 a.m. Thursday, January 18th at the Morningside Lutheran Church. Burial will be held at a later date at Graceland Park Cemetery. Allen was born May 7, 1930 in Chicago, Illinois, the son of Edward and Clara Olson Welding. He graduated from East High School and attended Morningside College, where he played football, and Iowa State University, receiving multiple master's degrees. Allen was offered a draft letter of acceptance from the Los Angeles Rams. He was a veteran of the United States Marines Corps, serving during the Korean conflict from 1952 to 1956. He was honorably honorably discharged as a lieutenant colonel. Allen married Marlene Peterson on April 1, 1956 in Elgin, Nebraska. He worked as the executive director for the Sioux City Livestock Exchange for 30 years, retiring in 1993. Allen also facilitated and taught in the Agriculture Management Program at Western Iowa Tech Community College for many years. 
Allen was active on many boards, including Vice President of the Chamber of Commerce, Sioux City Board of Electors, Morningside College Board, and the Western Iowa Tech Community College Board. He was a member of Morningside Lutheran Church and a published poet. He enjoyed reading, watching the History Channel, cheering on the Morningside College volleyball and football teams, eating bananas and chocolate, but above all, he loved his grandsons and great-grandchildren. We'll now move to the sports section, and we have uh, two stories about uh, GPAC basketball, one for the girls and one for the boys. We'll start with the boys. With a weather-induced pause in the Great Plains Athletic Conference men's basketball schedule this past week, let's break down where the conference stands as we enter the back half of the season. The top three are Hastings, Morningside, and Northwestern. Hastings sports and efficient offense is one of the four teams in the GPAC shooting over 50% as a team and scoring 76.5 points a game, third most in the league. On defense, Hastings allows the second fewest points per game at 70.7 points an outing. The Broncos slipped out of the rankings despite still sitting atop the league, though the team is among the team's receiving votes. Hastings started the season 10-2 before losing three of four games, two non-conference contests, and a home game against Morningside. Hastings' Reggie Thompson Thomas is pouring in a GPAC best 23.7 points per game. Northwestern split its last two GPAC games with one slip-up against Mount Marty and Yankton. The Red Raiders got back on the winning side with a 92-77 victory over Briarcliff and Orange City. Still, Northwestern sports the conference's best defense as it allows 67.3 points per game, while the offense scores at 79.1 points per game. The Red Raiders boast two of the GPAC's top five in field goal percentages, and Zach Lafaves, who's shooting a conference-high 63.3, and Katon Moser at 58.8, along with the leader in three-point percentages in Caleb Booth's 51.1% conversion rate from range. Morningside head coach Trent Miller improved to 50-24 with the Mustangs with a 99-75 win over Doan at home. At one point during the season, the Morningside offense scored over 100 points three games in a row. Miller's squad started off the month with a win over conference leader Hastings and has a big home game against Northwestern awaiting this week on Wednesday. The Mustangs possess a potent inside-out combination as six-foot-six big man Eli Doble ranks third in scoring average within the conference at 22.4 points per game while also sporting the second-best field goal percentage at 63.1, while teammate Brendan Buckley is grabbing 7.9 rebounds per game and guard Joey Scoff is scoring 21.1 points per game, shooting 55.3% from the field. Dobo went for 37 points on 16 of 19 shooting, plus 13 rebounds in Sunday's win. Morningside and Jamestown tied for the conference title last season. And then Tier 2, Concordia and Dort. Concordia's 89.9 points per game leads the GPAC thus far, while the defensive score is allowing 77.9 points per contest, which ranks in the middle of the conference. Noah Schutt is averaging 22 points a game, fifth most in the conference, and Tyler Haar has the third best three-point percentage at 46.6. Schutt and Tristan Smith rank as two of the league's three best rebounders as each are grabbing over eight a game on average. 
And then Dortz Lucas Lorenzen is averaging the fourth most points per game at 22.3 points a game, while the team scores an average of 88.3 points a game, the third best mark in the GPAC. On the other end, the defender's defense is allowing the third fewest points a game. And then Tier 3, Dakota Wesleyan, Jamestown, and Briar Cliff. Dakota Wesleyan is one of five conference teams to average under 80 points scored per game, while the defense is allowing under two points fewer at 77.6 points to rank in the middle of the league. Opponents are shooting 48.1% against Dakota Wesleyan, the second highest mark in the conference. Jamestown had its seven-game win streak snapped by Dort on January 10th, and the team has a sink-or-swim stretch coming up as it's set to take on Briarcliff and Morningside coming up next with a date against conference-leading Hastings shortly after that. Jamestown's Jimmy Linus leads the GPAC in rebounds per game and ranks third in field goal percentages. Briarcliff's Matthew Stilwell ranks second in the league in scoring at 23.3 points per game, while the team averages 81.9 points per game, sixth most in the GPAC. Defensive woes have sunk the Chargers at times this season, though. The team is one of three squads in the GPAC allowing more than 80 points scored against per outing, and opponents are shooting 49.4% against Briarcliff, the highest conversion rate against in the GPAC. Currently, Briarcliff is on a five-game losing streak. And now, now for the bottom three, Midland, Doan, and Mount Marty. Midland sports a winning record at home, but it's just 2-5 on the road this season. The team is scoring 83.8 points per game, the fourth most in the GPAC, but the defense is allowing a near equal number of points as the Warriors allow the second most points per game at 83.1 an outing. Doan's Cooper Sheldon is tied for the conference's fourth best rebounding rate at 7.9 but the team is on a two-game losing streak after winning three of four. Doan allows the fourth fewest points against per game in the G-Pack, but the offense scores 72.7 points per contest, second fewest inside the conference. Mount Marty allows the fourth most points per game at just under 80 a game, and the offense ranks last in scoring at 72 points per game. The team also has a third worst field goal percentage in the league at 45.4%. Now we'll move on and do the same thing with the women's basketball and GPAC. The top three are Dort, Concordia, and Briarcliff. Dort ranked atop the NAIA and the defending conference champions boasts the GPAC's stingiest defense as the defenders are allowing 58.5 points per game, the fewest in the conference. The defenders Gracie and Janie Schoonhover rank as two of the top three within the GPAC in field goal percentages. Gracie leads the league shooting 63.3% from the field and Janie has the third best rate at 61.6. Janie also leads the GPAC in rebounds per game, grabbing nine a contest. Macy Seavers also leads the GPAC in total assists and assists per game. Carly Gustafson grabs an average of 7.4 rebounds an outing, tied for the GPAC's third highest rate while sporting the fifth best field goal percentage in the conference at 56.1. Concordia can fill up it fill up from deep as it boasts two of the five best three-point percentages in Megan Belt and Kendall Brigham. 
That duo in total is a combined 40 of 93 from range. As a result, the team scores the GPAC's second most points per game at 83.9. Briarcliff's Maley McNair leads the Chargers in scoring at 16.6 points per game, a number that ranks fourth in the conference. McNair is coming off a career-high 39 points against Dolan earlier this month. Peyton Slotner's 6.8 rebounds a game is the fifth best mark in the league. As a team, the Chargers defense allows the third fewest points in the G-Pack at 63 per game, while scoring the most points a game at 86.9. Briarcliff has five players are averaging double figures this season in McNair, Slaughter, Connor Sudman, Kennedy Ben, and Taylor Sudman, although Sudman has only played in one game this season. Rachel Langle could join that group in short order, too, as she's averaging 9.7 points per game with five rebounds per outing. And then Tier 2 is Dakota Wesley and Northwestern and Doan and Morningside. Morgan Edelman's 7.4 rebounds per game for Dakota Westland and is tied for third best rate in the conference. And Grace Frieda is hitting threes at the fourth best rate as she's shooting 41.9% from range. Dakota Wesleyan also allowed the fewest, second fewest points in the conference. Northwestern's Molly Shaner ranks second in the conference in points per game, second in rebounds per game, and is shooting 63.3% on field goals attempts, the third best number in the G-Pack. The Red Raiders' Maddie Jones is one of only two players in the conference to average five or more assists, the other being Dort's Macy Seavers. At four a game, Jones' teammate Haley Anderson owns the third best average. Doan rosters the G-Pack scoring leader in Mac Hatcliffe, who's pouring in 24.3 points per game and hitting three-pointers at 50% clip. Doan is averaging just over 80 points a game, the fourth most in the G-Pack, while the defense allows an average of 75.1 per outing, which is second most in the league. Morningside is coming off a Sunday victory over Doan that put an end to the Mustangs' three-game losing streak. Chloe Lofstrom ranks among owners of the best field goal percentages in the G-Pack, as she ranks third at 62.4% after she led the Mustangs with 19 points over Doan by converting all seven shot attempts she took. Tier 3 is Hastings and Jamestown. Despite being a game on either side of 500 overall and in conference, Hastings is riding a four-game win streak with three of its next four games against Concordia, Dort, and Northwestern. Jamestown's Kate Cordes ranks third in the conference in points per game, points per game at 17.2. Jamestown is eighth in points scored per game and is seventh in points allowed per contest. Then the bottom three, Mount Marty, Midland, and College of St. Mary. Mount Marty's lone conference win came over College of St. Mary in late November. The Lancers are allowing nearly eight more points a game than they are scoring. Midland plays Mount Marty two more times after the Warriors are coming off a win over College of St. Mary. Midland has the lowest three-point percentage in the league at 24.6%. Tia Murray is a bright spot for College of St. Mary. She ranks inside the top five in points per game in the GPAC as she leads the team at 15.8 points an outing. And now another story, Sioux City lifts its snow emergency. 
Sioux City snow emergency imposed by Mayor Bob Scott on January 11th has been lifted. Beginning at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, vehicles may begin parking on both sides of the street unless otherwise posted. The city manager said they appreciated the cooperation from residents who moved their vehicles to assist city crews as they clean streets. Residents are also encouraged to sign up to receive snow emergency alerts via text, phone, and email through the Code Red platform, an option to receive updates regarding public transit, garbage, and recycling delays is also available. To sign up, text Alert Sioux City to 99411 or go to sioux-city.org alerts. We'll now move to Dear Abby. Dear Abby, after 35 years, I recently ran into my first love, Cliff. His sister lost her son, and I went to the wake. She and I were good friends growing up and stayed in touch occasionally through the years. Neither of us ever brought up her brother. Cliff and I broke up during my senior year of high school. I suspected a very good friend of mine was seeing him behind my back at the same time I was confiding in her over my broken heart. Turns out they got married. They are still married to this day. When I saw Cliff, he looked at me from a distance with a huge smile on his face and his hand over his heart. We hugged for a good five minutes. He held me the way he did when we were together. I never got closure from our breakup because his girlfriend, now wife, would not allow it. It turns out she wasn't happy that he and I were speaking that day. I really want closure even though all these years later I have moved on and am married to the love of my life. I need to heal that part of my heart and know if he still has feelings for me. I have gone through all these years feeling he hates me. Please help. Signed, Bittersweet Memory in New York. And Abby responds, I think you already have the answer to your question. When your old beau saw you, his smile lit up the room and he touched his heart. To me, it sends a strong message. That his wife wasn't thrilled the two of you spent five minutes hugging makes me wonder if she may have sabotaged your high school romance all those years ago. Please, go on with your life and stop looking back. You already have the closure you seek. Dear Abby, my family and I love to go camping and invite friends and family to join us. No matter how large the group is, I tend to be the one cooking all the meals all the time. I actually love to cook, but some of our guests take advantage and don't help out with food prep or cleanup, or the setup or takedown of camping equipment. They don't even pick up after their own children. One of them is a co-worker and a good friend, and I don't know how to approach her so that there are no hard feelings. I've actually considered not inviting that family again. I'll miss their company, but my family and I think it's rude not to help in any way. Signed, not a happy camper. And the response, I agree it's rude not to offer to help one's host in the situation you have described. Before inviting your good friend and co-worker on the next camp out, have a chat with her. Explain that if she and her family decide to come along next time, you will need her to assist you with those chores. That way, she will be warned and can refuse the invitation if it is not to her liking. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 16th. I'm Dogna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active, young, and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. 
If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org. Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing. It really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. 
a message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.